You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Hey, good morning. Uh, I am reading this morning from Matthew 21 verses 1 through 17. Uh, If you grabbed one of these black Bibles from the welcome table, it starts on page 775. So Matthew 21, starting in verse 21, it says this. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two, two disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, And the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. They were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you've prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Pray with me. Father, what a, what a privilege and a joy to gather with the brothers and the sisters uh, before you and to sing praises and to come under your word. Um, Father, thank you for speaking to us and giving us your word. Um, and such a beautiful Sunday uh, in a place uh, to gather. Father, we pray for this place. We pray that uh, as we depart from here after service, that... Father, something would be different in these halls. Um, Father, we pray for life in these halls as as the students walk around, as the teachers uh, teach their subjects. Father, point them to you because you, uh, you are life. And everyone who walks through these buildings needs you. Father, we pray this morning for the sermon. Pray that you would speak and that we would hear by your spirit for your glory. Let us see Jesus and obey because you're worthy of our faith and you're worthy of our obedience and we need you. So we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.
Well, good morning. My name's Casey. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. And uh, if you're with us uh, for the first time, we're in Matthew 21 and we're walking toward Easter. And if you've been with us for a while, um, you're like, hey, we already covered Matthew 21. And we didn't. We actually skipped Matthew 21 and we're back. Uh, But if you have your Bible, I I want you to look at it. We're going to be looking at a lot of just details uh, of the text. Because the details in Matthew 21 and really moving on out, man, they say so much about Jesus. And what we actually see is Jesus is in the mix orchestrating these details, and he's thinking about the Old Testament and the prophecies of it, and he's not like rigging it so he looks a certain way because he's not. He's pointing to the Old Testament to point at himself to say very, very clearly, the gauntlet is down. Decide who I am. And so every detail starts to really slow down in Matthew chapter 21. Like, like just to kind of take a, a look at this, like looking at the, the text as a whole, like kind of jump out with me. And so we're jumping to the, back to chapter 21. We're starting the last book before we get into the passion of the gospel of Matthew. And so most theologians, they divide it up into five books where you have these interactions and then you have teachings about the interactions. And so for the last several weeks, we've been talking about the teachings of this interaction, but now we want to step back and we're starting to see what Jesus is stepping into. And so first he's stepping into Jerusalem, and he's not stepping into Jerusalem alone. Matter of fact, we see a huge horde of people moving with him, coming to start a parade. And like, if you look around, before we even get to the details of Matthew 21, like there's so many details around this. Like in Matthew 21, like I'm going to, this is going to blow your mind. Uh, I I counted myself. There are seven chapters to follow, and they are long chapters. Matthew 21, it it starts with the last week of Jesus' life. And so look at what follows. In, In chapter 22, 23, 24, and 25, Jesus sets into this discourse of teaching, which is more aggressive in a lot of ways than what he's been doing. Over and over when he's teaching, he's saying, decide who I am. Make a decision. I'm not coming to like split down the middle. I'm not coming to be just a good teacher or someone to teach you to be nice to one another. I'm coming to say something really profound about myself, and you have to decide. And over and over, the gauntlet that's thrown down is this. Will you crown me or will you kill me? And so the teaching starts to get very, very clear. It's one side or or the other. There's no middle road with Jesus. And then we step into chapter 26, and he's arrested. Chapter 27, he's beaten, executed. Uh, And then chapter 28, he is executed, murdered, and raised from the dead. So literally 30% of the book of Matthew just barely under it. I mean, I kind of, I did the, I counted the pages and then I did complex math where you divided the small number by the big number to get the point, whatever. And it was 0.29% or 0.29 something percent. So roughly 30% of the book of Matthew is the details of Jesus's last week. And if you remember, Matthew starts, I mean, we started Matthew, I mean, you don't remember that. Um, we started it forever ago, but it starts with the birth narrative. 
And so we spend a little time in Jesus's like birth, like what happened to fulfill all that was foretold. And then we jump ahead into his ministry and we spend most of the time in Galilee. And now the Galilean crowd is following him telling all that we've seen, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. So you have one crowd that's convinced of something about Jesus. You have another crowd that's unsure and they're asking questions. And then we step up to like chapter 26, 27, and 28. And there's another crowd that says, crucify, crucify, crucify. And here's the deal. You have to decide what crowd you're in. Jesus is coming to make a decision. And so all this time to spend on this last week of Jesus' life, like, I mean, just kind of asking, like, man, the details of your life, they matter also. I mean, just today, um, I, I got, I got, uh, I met some new babies uh, this morning, um, and I started to cry. I just, I don't know, I love babies. I mean, I was like, I don't know, they're not my baby. Um, but I met some new babies. I talked to some friends who lost a really dear friend uh, this week. Um, I found out that Vika, wherever she is, got fully funded because of your all's generosity. That's good. And you know, like thinking about the details of your life, I want to know, do all the details matter or do they not? Is Jesus sovereign over them? Is he trying to show himself to you? Is he trying to reveal weakness or false belief in your life, things that you lean on and trust in, that you hope in, but they never pay off? Or is he not? If he's orchestrating the details of his death, is he orchestrating the details of your life? And is this, are the scriptures true? Is he good? Is he humble? Can he be trusted? You know, earlier this week, I was um, talking to Austin, and he asked me about my week. And I was like, man, my last week, man, it was crazy. You know, I was doing a bunch of churchy stuff, and that was crazy. And, and then we, uh, you know, my in-laws came, and that's, you know, that's always crazy. They brought my kids' cousins, so that's extra crazy. And then we had six basketball games in three different towns for three different kids. And I was like, man, it was just like an overwhelming week. And then I was like, how was your week? He's like, oh, we had a baby. And I was like... That's just one. I told you six basketball games, you know? And so, like, like, this is a really busy, crucial week. Every detail here matters. And so as we look at this, man, we're going to look at Jesus' audacious claims, what he's saying about himself as he enters into Jerusalem. He's saying that he is the humble king coming on a donkey to purchase peace, to save his people. And in doing so, he is demanding a response. Crown him or kill him. No middle ground. And so I just want to walk through these passages or this passage, and I want to kind of be like a um, tour guide, and we're going to point at words and uh, we're going to talk about what it's pointing back to and what it's saying about Jesus. And ultimately, I want us all, whether you've been walking with Christ for a long time, I want us to get a, a place of decision. Man, will I trust Jesus and what he says about himself? Will I crown him or will I kill him? And so let's take a look at this. And so the first thing, we see Jesus comes. 
And so just look at kind of an overview. Jesus comes and you must decide where you stand with him. You have to decide what crowd. And there's a moment where you can be a crowd looking at the evidence in the middle, deciding which way you're going to go. But if you just look as a whole, look at verses 1 through 11. You see his entrance into Jerusalem is this ruckus parade. It is pregnant with prophecy and meaning that he is bestowing upon himself, that he is pointing at things and he is pointing back at himself. And so it has this declaration tone, but it also has a threatening tone. I mean, this is a huge parade, like a parade. The very point of it is to take to announce something in the middle of people's lives, to walk it right through their streets, to draw attention, to say, this is something that's true. This is something that happened, or this is something that I want you to see. And sometimes parades, they, they indicate a truth that we don't want to see. I mean, like uh, the, the Kansas City parade, the shooting happens, like it indicates that man, we are not in a safe world. Our world is not as safe as we want to think that it is. It had an unintended message that we all had to grapple with. The next morning I was in Starbucks and my neighbor, uh, she uh, was walking out. I was walking in. As soon as she saw me, she started to cry and just gave me a hug. Like it rattled her. It gave a message right out for everyone to see. We're not as safe as we think we are. And so the parade is meant to say something. And so Jesus is coming to say something, to make it very, very public. And look, look at verse 12. In verse 12, that parade takes him to the outer courts of the temple. And what happens is he starts just kind of flipping over tables and moving people out. And, you know, I, I heard a, a sermon once a long time ago. It was awful, actually. But, um, but you, hey, sometimes you have to hear awful sermons, too, you know. Um, but it was talking about, like, Jesus and he, uh, you know, like, working long hours as a carpenter. And, you know, when he, like, stood up, you know, his muscles were huge and people were scared. And I don't know if that's true or not. But I think what was clear was when they looked at Jesus, they saw that he meant it. He was passionate. And so then in verse 13, he claims everything to be about, he says, this is my house. He's quoting the Old Testament, but I think he's probably pointing at himself saying, my house is to be a house of prayer. And listen, when you go into a house and you rearrange the furniture, if you don't like own the house, there's usually problems, even if your feng shui concept is way better. Uh, right now, um, uh, two of my daughters want to rearrange their room, and uh, they bring it up quite a lot. And, uh, you know, the, and I, I get it, you know, I mean, like, first off, my room is a, rel it's a relative term for them, Okay. Uh, but they want to rearrange the room. The problem is I built the bunk beds, and it's not a two-daughter kind of job. It's like a four-grown-men kind of job. And so I'm not ready to commit to it, so I'm just changing the subject. Like, hey, what do you think about us rearranging the room? I'm like, do you like puppies? Um, and so, like, the idea of just walking in and rearranging, my in-laws were here. And not rearranging the furniture, but they help uh, by putting away the dishes, and they do it so confidently. Like, oh, yeah, this has to go here. We won't find things for weeks. Jesus comes in, he starts rearranging not just things and tables, he starts rearranging purpose and drawing it back. He's claiming intent and ownership. And then we get to, we're not really gonna deal with these verses, look at verse 18. 
In verse 18, you have a living parable where he walks up to a tree that looked like it was full of life, but it didn't have any fruit, and he curses it. And the disciples remember that it died almost instantly or quickly, and they remember that this was pointing back to, you can look like you have life, but Jesus has a right to fruit, and he has a right to dictate the kind of fruit he wants in his people. And so it's dictating that, man, the temple is going away because a new temple is here that he already declared, you kill this temple, you tear this temple down, in three days it'll rise again. And so this is, Jesus comes and he's saying, you have to make a decision. Listen to what one of my commentaries said. He said this, Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem is deliberately dramatic. It begins with two actions designed to draw attention and to provoke people to think about Jesus's messianic claim. Jesus has publicly thrown down the gauntlet. Decide, kill me or crown me. And so the first thing, Jesus comes and he's forcing a decision just in the overview, but now let's look at the details. And so in the details, we see first a, a donkey. And it's hard to not say that and think about Shrek. Um, but we see Jesus comes riding a donkey and he's declaring that he is the promised king who brings peace. And so first, I want you to see the instructions and the details that Jesus is giving to draw attention to himself. And so look at verse one, it says, now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, and then Jesus sent two of his disciples. So he sends them into the city saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and so the village before you get to Jerusalem, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And so that's pretty specific. And so, I mean, some people, like, is this prearranged? Like a follower of Jesus said, yeah, you can borrow my donkey and colt, um, which, you know, I had to look it up. I, I'm kind of a city boy, so a colt is like a... You know, there's also going to say foul. It's a little donkey, baby donkey. Um, and so, you know, it's probably prearranged. And so like there was kind of a co-word, I'm going to set these out. You come get them when you need them. And so Jesus saying, I want to come into Jerusalem on this. Some people think it's possible that he was just the God nature of him. Like, hey, just go take the donkey. It's mine anyways. Either way, he is specifically saying there are details here. And so look, look at verse three. If anyone uh, says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. And so this could have been just prearranged. I'm going to send someone to come get the, the donkey and the colt, and you'll know it's the right person because they'll say the Lord needs them. Or this is just like God wills it. Give it to me. You know, I mean, I, I don't know. It's one or the other. But Jesus is in the details. Jesus is saying, you know, I've walked all the way here. It's not that he's tired. It's very specific. Like he's coming to say, I will ride in on the colt the fowl of a donkey. And so look at verse four. The donkey is actually saying a lot because he's quoting from the Old Testament, like they relate it back. The donkey says that Jesus is the promised king who brings peace. And so in verse four, it says, this took place. So Matthew fills us in. He says, this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah nine, saying, say to the daughters of Zion. So say to Jerusalem, say to my people, uh, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foul baby of the beast of burden. 
And so Zechariah, roughly 500 years before this moment, describes the messianic king, the promised king to come, would come into Jerusalem, not on a war horse, but on a humble donkey. And actually, Zechariah, like if you just make a note, Zechariah 9, it says more. There's some things that, that, that Matthew left out. And so it actually says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl, the fowl of a donkey. And so he, he, he's on a donkey, I mean, actually, he's on a colt, the baby of a donkey. And that's a careful detail to align back to Zechariah 9. And so Jesus rode this colt of a donkey. And so it's this young donkey that's most likely never been ridden. And I don't know if you know about this, but animals that aren't trained to have a rider don't like riders. And so I I grew up, uh, I mean... I grew up, I'm kind of a city boy, but I grew up going to rodeos. I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma. I mean, you know, you have to. Um, And uh, like they have that event where they put the little kids on sheep. Um, The sheep don't like it, but it's so cute. I mean, they just run straight line. Kids are falling off everywhere. You wonder if like CPS is around, you know, I mean, you know, the kids seem to like it, uh, but the sheep don't like it when they're done. They're just like, yeah, that was bad, you know? Um, (laughs) And so you have that, that's where you start them. And then you have bronco riding. And so, you know, you get on a, a, a horse, a giant horse, and that horse doesn't like riders on it. And so, I mean, like, it goes crazy, and it cannot be good for you. Like, every buck takes a week off your life. And sometimes they stay on, sometimes they don't. But, man, the thing about bronco riding is the rider gets thrown off, and the horse is cool. It's like, hey, that's just what I wanted. We can be objective-oriented, outcome-oriented here. I wanted you off, it's off. Then you have bull riding. You have 2,000 pounds of bull that is angry and like vengeful. And so like it throws the rider off and then the bull wants to get even. And then you send the clowns in to help the bull rider. And like, you're like, oh man, the the bull, you know, the clowns, they look silly. They are the toughest humans alive. Uh, Kinsey, her uh, grade school principal was a rodeo clown. He broke like every bone in his body a couple times just for good measure. Could you imagine like him being mad at you? Like, I mean, what are you gonna do? Like scare him, you know? Animals that haven't been trained to carry rider don't want them. And so the detail of this, like it's there. I don't know exactly what it means, but it's there to stand out. And so we actually see what this, you know, starts to say. So Jesus rode this donkey to say that his kingship would be established. And so with peace, so without violence, and then we know that through submitting to the will of his enemies. Like, you know, actually a better translation. So, you know, Matthew jumps over the righteous and having salvation is he to get straight to the donkey and the colt and the the fowl of the donkey. You know, he's humble and mounted on the donkey, but he misses this phrase. But a better translation of righteous and salvation of he would be vindicated and saved. And so what it is, like, it directs it back to he. Like, it's not saying he's doing the action. The action is being done to him. And so Jesus will be victorious and meek, and his triumph will be received rather than won. This peace will only come when Jesus, the promised king, is vindicated and saved. And then after the resurrection, we see in the teaching of the New Testament is saved from death by the power of God. 
And so all these details are coming together, and Jesus is saying, this is about me. You know, and I read this, and I think, I think, you know, not all commentaries point to this, but I think that Jesus rode a donkey into Jerusalem to also paint a familiar picture about a rebellion that happened under King David when his son Absalom decided to take over the kingdom. And so in 2 Samuel 15, King David's son Absalom tries to overthrow King David, his father. King David fled, and after you know, defeating the uprising, he traveled the exact same road from the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem to reestablish his kingdom. And once he was back on the throne, he received his enemies back, and he offered them peace and forgiveness. But if you know and you're familiar with 2 Samuel 15, that peace came at the price of a son. Absalom was killed. And so like Absalom led a rebellion against his father, the king, the price of peace and forgiveness for others to enter in was the death of a son. And I think this is pointing that Jesus is the returning king. He has come to establish his kingdom, but it also has the price of the death of a son so that you can re-enter and peace can be offered to you. Now, I, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I like it when stuff works out. I, I mean, you can like, eh, that's probably not true. I, I like it. But all of these things are pointing. Every detail is saying something profound about Jesus. He is saying, I am the promised king. I have come riding a donkey to bring peace. And when God vindicates and saves me from death, the enemies of God will be invited in and they can be forgiven. So the first thing we point to the donkey. N next, and we want to point to the crowds and what's going on. And so Jesus comes riding on a donkey, declaring to, the, uh, to be a promised king from the son of David. And he's come to save his people. And so this entrance, it, it's big. Like the crowd is growing. You know, sometimes, you know, when you see a crowd do it, you're just like, man, I just want to see what's going on. And it's kind of threatening. You know, after uh, the Chiefs won, uh, people, they asked, hey, did you go downtown? I'm like, no way I went downtown. <laughs> I mean, no. Uh, because the last time, you know, I think it was a Final Four, people got up on the Acme balcony and, you know, came crashing down. I remember when my kids were like, why would anyone do that? I'm like, because you get in a crowd and you're like, oh, it seems like a good idea. Man, crowds can be dangerous. And so this crowd is from Galilee. Most of Jesus' miracles were done in Galilee. In John 11, in the timeline that John gives, Lazarus has just been raised from the dead. And so they decided, man, we got to kill Jesus. This is getting out of hand. And we need to kill Lazarus. We can't have him walking around telling everyone what happened. I mean, could you imagine what it was like to be Lazarus after that? I mean, even the people who knew you, like they just look at you for a while and just kind of touch you, you know, like, okay, yeah. I remember burying you. I mean, so they're like, we've got to stop this. Now this procession is going to the Passover and they're coming in and they're declaring something about Jesus that's audacious. And so this is what they say. Look at verse six. It says, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. And they brought the donkey and the colt and put it and put on their cloaks and he sat on them. It's always like, how far is it going to roll? You never know. <laughs> I mean, it just keeps going. Um, 
And so, you know, when it says he sat on them, I think it means he sat on the cloaks. I don't think he, like, was skiing on the donkeys, you know. I, I don't think it was, but, I mean, it's whatever. Um, but so he sits on them. He comes riding in, so he's lifted up. And, you know, this is starting to build this picture. Look at verse 8. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And so the cloaks and the branches are saying something, and they're saying, this is a notable person coming in. This is like the red carpet, you know, coming out in front of them. All look here. Take notice. This is what you would do for a victorious king. And then verse 9, it says, And then the crowds went before him, and they followed him, and they were shouting. And so the first is like, we see the cloaks and the branches pointing at something. This is the king bound. Look at what they're shouting. And so they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so the shouts, they're saying something very, very specific. They're saying that Jesus is the promised Messiah king who had come to save them. And, and so two things. First, the son of David, they were looking for a descendant of King David to come reestablish the throne. And that throne was starting to be you know, described as something otherworldly, a throne that would never end, a throne that would go on forever. You know, then you get into Daniel and starts painting the son of man. It's not just, you know, they have the appearance of man, but there's something different about this guy. There's something eternal about his nature. And so Jesus is standing in this picture and they're looking, this is the son of David. This is the one who has come. And they yell, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna means save us now. And so this parade is coming in and it is attributing to Jesus as he's riding on a donkey declaring a peace has come and they are saying save us now O promised king from the line of David save us now this is a lot of detail this is a lot of claim that Jesus is bringing to himself and he's not like oh you guys are you know settle down here he's receiving it you know, and this is very different from what's been happening in Matthew. Like, if you've been with us for the last year plus, um, you realize that Matthew, a lot of times, he does something. He casts out, you know, Jesus casts out a demon, and it comes out, and it says, this is the Son of God, and he silences it. He's like, let's keep that down. Or he heals someone, and they're like, man, this is incredible. I couldn't walk. Now I can't. I couldn't see. Now I can. I was lame. I had leprosy. I want to go tell everyone. And he says, don't tell anyone. He keeps bringing it down and silencing it. All of a sudden, that is all off. He is receiving praise. He is orchestrating things to say, this is who I have come. This is who I am. And he's saying over and over, you have to decide. You have to decide. You know, the, 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 there's a crowd in the middle who's going to say, man, who is this? Like, look at verse 10. It says, and when they entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. That means shaking. That's the same word that describes at the moment of Jesus' death, there was an earthquake that tore the, the temple curtain. It's the same word that describes, you know, what happened in the resurrection. Like, it means that how, like, everything was just going berserk. People were asking him, what is going on? You know, Jerusalem would have swelled to four or five times its normal self in this time. It's like Sturgis. You know, like there's only like five people who live there, but then, you know, a couple of weekends, everyone who has a motorcycle just kind of flocks there like birds, you know? And so it's something that a small town gets much, much bigger. And so this is having this procession moving in. And the description is the whole city was quaking. 
And so Jesus comes riding on a donkey, declaring to be the promised king from the son of David, from the line of David, who's come to save his people. Hosanna, save us now, save us now. So Jesus is saying a lot. The shouts are saying something. He's accepting it. The cloaks and the palm branches are saying something. He's accepting it. The donkey is saying something, and he's accepting it. And so then we get right here to the end of the passage, and Jesus comes riding on a donkey as the son of David, the promised king, to save his people. And he goes to do business in the temple. And so let's talk about the temple just for a second. Like this is the temple coming in, but this is also the Passover. So the celebration of when God miraculously saved his people, you know, and judgment on the firstborn was going to happen for everyone in Egypt unless you covered your firstborn by the blood of a sacrifice, by the blood of a lamb. And so at this time, it's the biggest holiday. I mean, arguably the biggest holiday that the Jewish people would celebrate, that the Hebrew people would come together. And so of the three holidays that you would probably try to travel to Jerusalem, this is the biggest one. And so this is the most public stage. And Jesus goes to the very heart of it. And so he goes into the temple. What you would have seen in the temple is a huge structure with walls, doors, courtyards, specific rules of who can go where and how far in you can go. And so in the very middle of the temple would have been the Holy of Holies. And so that's only the elected high priest. And they can only go there once a year to make a sacrifice. But before they go in there, a lot of sacrifices and ritual washing has to happen. Because the idea is you are going to the closest you can get to the presence of God. Like even walking in there, they would tie a rope around your foot just in case you die in there. They don't want to go in. They're just going to pull you out. And so the very heart was the place where you get closest to God. Very few people could ever get there. Outside of that, it was just called the holy place. And the doors there would have been 60 to 100 feet tall, keeping people out. Beyond those doors is the court of the priest. Now, this is where the priests spent a lot of time working. This is where all the sacrifices happen. This is where they set up shop and you would come in and you would give sacrifices for the unintended sins of the year. This is where you would come and you would purchase something or bring something that you might atone, just like the Passover. I know I'm guilty and I need God to overlook my guilt. And so the priest would do all the work here. Right outside of that was the court of Israel. This is where Jewish men could come. Right beyond that was the court of women. Jewish women could come that far, but they couldn't go any further. And so there's all these barriers. How do you get close to the presence of God? All these things, these rules that say, man, for your safety and for the reverence of God, you can't come any closer. And then outside of that, you would have where all of this has taken place, a 36-acre courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles. And so this was the place for God-fearers, people like Cornelius in Acts. Who, who wasn't born Jewish, not God's people, but somehow discovered the claims of this God and believed them and followed after Yahweh, they could come here. And this is where all the conflict is going down. And so look at verse 12. It says, And Jesus entered the temple, standing in the court of the Gentiles. This is where it's happening. And he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned tables and money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And so, you know, my, my commentary, one of my commentaries, they all said this, of like, this is kind of a new thing. 
Now, we've always had like the money changer, or they, they had a long time, the money changers and places you could buy sacrifices. Because if you're traveling, you know, hundreds of miles and it's going to take you a week or whatever to get there, you know, bringing all your sacrifices is pretty tough. But this usually was set up outside the wall of the temple. Well, so recent, uh, you know, legislation had brought that inside. And so it's kind of maybe the idea of outside of the wall, we can't regulate who's selling what. We can't control the prices. Inside the wall, we can. And so it's like we only sell Pepsi products here, you know. And you're like, who, sell, who likes Pepsi products, you know. Um, I'm not sponsored. Uh, and so, you know, it's kind of that idea. We control who's selling here. And so the selling, you know, it might, maybe there was exorbitant prices. People say that, and that might be true. But the idea was this is the place that Gentiles could come to get close to the presence of God. And all of a sudden it was like, well, that's not really important to us. This is what's important. And so they moved it inside the walls. And so verse 13, Jesus, he says, it is written, after he starts turning things over and pushing people out, he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And so Jesus is putting two Old Testament quotes together. First, Isaiah 56, he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. And then Jeremiah 7, one of Jeremiah's most famous uh, sermons that he was denouncing the leadership uh, of the temple where he accuses them that you've made it a den of robbers. In Jeremiah 7, the greater context, Jeremiah accuses the temple leadership of being a den of robbers by stealing, murdering, committing adultery, lying, and sacrificing to Baal. And so he's saying, your allegiance to God has gone elsewhere. It's no longer here. You don't come to give. You come to take. So he's making that phrase. Every Hebrew would have understood that phrase, and they would be like, dang, shots fired. But the other phrase, you know, Isaiah 56, he says, you know, Matthew stopped short on this quote, probably because it was obvious to everyone, but this is the fuller quote. So Matthew 56, we get down in verse 7, it says, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. That's the word nations. Something about my house will be open to all people and all nations. Something about all the links and dams that are keeping people from out. Like, they are important, but there is an availability for all people. And suddenly the leadership is like, well, we don't really like those people. Let's just set up commerce in the place those people would come. And so outside the walls, inside the walls. Now verse 8 of Isaiah 56, it says, The Lord God, now listen to this, who gathers the outcast of Israel, the leftovers of Israel, who brings them in. You could have described those people as what Jesus has been saying over and over. The tax collectors and the prostitutes enter first, or the people who are blind and lame, who you might think God doesn't love that much. The outcast of Israel comes in. And then look at this. He says, declare, I will gather yet others to him beside those already gathered. And so we see so many rules about who can get close and who can get there, and the religious leaders are making it harder. Jesus comes riding on a donkey as the son of David, the promised king to save his people, and he goes to do business in the temple. And he's saying, make room for everyone. He's throwing down this gauntlet. 
And he's saying, you must decide. You will either look at me and even the crowd in the middle has to decide, will they crown me king of their life or will they shout crucify, crown him or kill him? Look at verse 14. It says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. You know, um, well, I'll get the quote in a second. And he healed them. Sometimes I get excited. Um, but when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and so they're not saying, like, they're saying the powerful things that he did. And so they're probably talking like, hey, when do we, uh, you know, let's confront him. When do we do that? And they're like, man, he just healed those blind people. Leave it alone. And so the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these children are saying? You're letting them say it about you. Do you hear what they're saying? They're picking up a doctrine we don't agree with. Like they're saying something. We know what they're saying. Do you know what they're saying? And listen to what he says. Do you hear what they're saying? Jesus says, yes. Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? He's saying, yes, they are right. I will save them. That same commentary, uh, it says this about this section about the blind and the lame. It says, the reader who has good knowledge of the Old Testament text is likely to recall that at David's first capture of Jerusalem, he was taunted with the cry, even the blind and the lame will keep you out. In response, declared his hatred for the blind and the lame, resulting in the saying, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And so King David, the best king they ever had, who did a lot of bad stuff, but King David, of this motif that we would draw that the Messiah would be like this shepherd-like king who would lay down his life for everyone, he had this moment where he was angered because they threatened his strength and said, even the blind and the lame could keep you out. And so in anger, he declared, the blind and the lame won't be welcomed here. So it goes on. Yet here, in the house, Jesus the son of David, is approached by the blind and the lame, and far from dismissing them, he heals them. Matthew expects his reader to make the comparison, the cry of the children in verse 15, Hosanna, save us, O son of David. He is the son of David indeed, but at this point, the connection with David is one of contrast rather than similarity. Something new is here. And you have to decide. You know, we talked about the temple from the holiest of holies out to the you know, courts of the Gentiles. All of these barriers were to keep you from just coming straight to God. And if you, you know, and the, the picture of it is, man, a holy God can't just be like, you can't just walk up and give him a high five when you have sin in your life. So all of these rules were making something clear. It's hard to get close to God. We take it for granted. We don't think about it. It's hard to get close to God. It takes a lot to get close 
to God. And so Jesus comes riding on a donkey as the son of David, the promised king, to save his people. And he does business in the temple to make a way back for you. So you can receive the presence of God, the promise of the Holy Spirit. And one day, full union with God himself in the resurrection, that you can receive it by faith through grace, not by works of your own, but by the works of him, the king who entered into Jerusalem, who walked into death, but was vindicated and saved by God the Father, overcoming death itself. And the gauntlet is down that you have to decide who Jesus is. And so Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews comes in chapter 10 and he says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the God, of God, waiting for that time until his enemies should be made his footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The way you enter into the presence of God is looking at Jesus and believing all the details of the story. We're painting a picture of who he is. The promised Messiah King who came to be a sacrifice for us. So we, the enemies of God, could be reunited with God and could be forgiven. Do you believe that? Let me pray for us. Um, Lord, man, we're still several weeks um, away from Easter, but gosh, as the text slows down and we start to build this momentum, there is one crowd coming in with Jesus who is yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, save us, save us. Oh, from the line of David, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they see Jesus a certain way. And there is another who in just a few chapters, they're going to yell, crucify, crucify. And there's a crowd in between asking, what is going on? But the point of the gospel, the claims that you made, Lord, it puts us in a place that we can't just dismiss it as, man, I think Jesus was just a really good guy, a moral teacher who wanted us to be nice to other people. If we do that, we're not reading what the text says. But Lord, we can throw ourselves at the mercy of this king who came on a donkey declaring peace. And through the death of your son, through the death of Jesus, we can come before the king again and be welcomed in and forgiven. All the details are saying something. And now you've heard. You've heard the details. You've heard what they're connected to. There's probably way, way more, but you've heard And the question is, what do we do with that? If I'm a believer, do I give more lordship to Jesus, trusting in him? If he had the details there, he's got the details of my life now. If I'm on the fence, kind of kicking the tires of Jesus, you need to make a decision. The recommitment of every week is coming when we step to the table and we're saying again, man, I bring nothing to the table but what I have. And if we're honest, man, through the victories, the highs and lows of the week, I bring need. And so we come to the table and the bread is provided for us. It's the body of Christ broken for us, reminding us of what happened on the cross. The blood is there or, you know, symbolic in the wine or the grape juice. And remember that his blood was poured out for us. And so we remember 
that, man, we're safe, not based on what we have done, but based on what he did. Lord, we love you and we need you. In Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas, please visit our website at fcclawrence.com.